This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we explore art preservation and conservation with the owner and lead painting conservator of LA Art Labs. She has worked for such museums as LACMA, MOCA, The Broad, and The Met. She uses scientific techniques to achieve museum quality restoration, and she tells us about her pigment collection and how she even has a color from an Egyptian mummy. She also shares stories about working on everything from Picasso to Banksy. Coming up is my conversation with the Princess of Preservation, Camilla Corbella. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you, good. Thank you so much for having me. Have I taken you away from your art today? Uh, you did indeed. I'm actually currently at the Broad. We are here all day to take care of all the paintings that are in the collection. And so I'm doing a little break in order to talk to you. So exciting. That's a great place to start. When you talk about taking care of paintings, I know that you do restoration and you do preservation, but is there something along the way that you're doing to keep things fresh and up to date? Tell us what today's tasks are. Today is mainly maintenance. Maintenance looks like dusting paintings. It looks like making sure that the condition of each painting is stable, that the optics are given everything's basically as it should be. That's a routine approach, and every more important collection should undergo routine maintenance cycles. I didn't know there was museum dusters that went through. <laughs> you don't have like a little feather duster. It's more specific than that, obviously. So actually, feather dusters are used for a very specific application. They get into like little tight spaces really well and pull out dust and debris that has been there for years and years sometimes three, four, five hundred years. Most of the time we're using very soft bristle brushes made from goat hair, for instance. Sometimes you want a bit of a stiffer brush and then you use horse hair brushes. That's amazing. So you would do that on a sculpture or something to work into all the crevices? and Not necessarily sculptures. Right now, for instance, we're only focusing on the paintings, of which there are many. Most of the times we actually only take care of the paintings collections because they are a little bit different than the sculptures, which are more composite materials, but oftentimes we very much focus on paintings. What is the importance overall of preserving art? Preserving our collective memory, things that are not necessarily tangible anymore or generally speaking, also in the contemporary that are not tangible. Artists give us access to past events, thoughts, or even like emotions, something that is very abstract. 
And then in the today, which is why I think it's so important to have more and more contemporary artists express themselves and have much more access to that form of expression through all channels of media. It just like gives us an account that we can tap into and then better understand what we're currently dealing with, what we have dealt with, and where we are actually headed as a collective. I really like that phrase to hold on to our collective memory. That that really cements it for me a little bit better. Yeah. What is your own art background? Because you must have to have a skill set to be dealing with all of these different kinds of artists and these kinds of materials. My undergrad and graduate degree is in paintings conservation specifically. I've never done anything else. And ever since I was a child, I wanted to actually first become an artist. And my parents thought that was not such a great idea because it's a little hard to get by. But eventually, my mother, when I was a young teenager, introduced me to the world of paintings conservation. And ever since, I just loved the idea of diving into that fascinating world. Does that world include quite a bit of research and history? A lot, a lot. Every treatment that we approach is informed by the history of artwork, when it was made, the circumstances in which it has been made, but then also its path throughout the ages. When we consider important events like iconoclasm, for instance, which is when paintings that were sacral were destroyed or impaired to one extent or another. These are actually also documents of the past that we would perhaps not necessarily perceive as a damage, but would preserve all the time like a case-to-case base. But knowing, yes, the history of an artwork very much determines which direction it goes in terms of treatment. What would you say the worst project is in terms of the thing that had the most damage that you had to restore? I was put on a lot of projects that were considered to be total losses. And there was said to be no recovery from the impact, like a painting that was abandoned in its crate that filled up with water and destroyed the the surface. Mold grew all over the surface. I was able to retrieve it. It took months in order to get it back and remove all these layers of mold and the devastation from the impact. But there are ways. The water seems like it could be really one of the more damaging things. Light and water? Light is problematic. Water is problematic. Anything in too high quantities that you can imagine is usually problematic. Yeah, I imagine smoke and fire and all those things you've kind of crossed paths with. Yeah, exactly. And that's here in California, a really big topic because of all the fires. And so when fire season comes around, we usually are swamped with work. And it goes also into the preventative realm where perhaps a building and its collection that it holds is not affected directly, but by the particles that are in the air, there is already pollution and it will affect the surfaces of paintings, and it will need to be removed immediately in order to not cause further issues in the future. Right. So if there's a lot of ash in the air or something, they might put that into cold storage right away. Not necessarily cold storage. Well, I'm talking like a guy who keeps meat (laughs) 
So I know I don't know what I'm talking about. Clearly, they would put it somewhere safe. Exactly, and climatized storage. If you actually put the wrong paintings into cold storage, if you want so, you might affect the paint layers of the painting because they embrittle, and then it can actually cause cracking. Oh, cool. So tell me what other kinds of storage there are so that next time I'm bullshitting, I know other <laughs> ways to say it. What paintings, generally speaking, like is to keep their climate as stable as possible and to change as little as possible. So that I find very human, too, because we oftentimes don't adapt to changes very well. That same basically applies to paintings. The only thing I know about preservation is jams and pickles. I do make pickles <laughs> on a frequent basis. Generally, they have no value. So the kinds of treatments that you've done, and I know you've worked on a long list of artists, Monet and Degas and Casso Gauguin. <laughs> I saw on that list that you did a treatment on, on, uh, on a Banksy, 1974 Banksy. Can you tell me what you did there and how that worked, that particular treatment? There were so many Banksy's that I treated in the meantime that I'm not quite sure which you are referring to. We all, I think, know kind of how Banksy works. So I'm wondering what kind of touch-up or restoration or things that you would might need to do to, to his work. Most of the Banksy's that you encounter, they're actually in a really good condition because collectors do really know and value these works and they keep them pretty well. So most of the, the things with Banksy that I encountered are relatively minor and it's little like surface accretions, for instance, some losses around the perimeters, maybe from not so careful handling that needed to be compensated, but it's all relatively minor. It's a very straightforward technique. So the treatment actually is generally speaking, not too complicated Oftentimes, it's a mixed technique of silk screening or other printing techniques and, and hand-embellished areas. And the hand-embellished areas, most collectors that think that they have a printed piece are actually not aware of. And you can see under the microscope, the brushwork, like very fine brush marks. And this is where a conservator can then tell the client that they have a hand-embellished piece and they had no idea that that was actually the case. Great. Well, you bring up the equipment. Can we find out the year? Can we see the painting behind the painting? What, what kinds of things are you discovering with that equipment? I mean, there's like first the routine approach where before any treatment is done or also just to document an artwork for a collector that is in a, an important collection is to photograph it. And it's visible light, it's raking light, which is basically light at an angle, which shows the surface of the painting and where there are differences in terms of protruding elements like impasto, where it's flat. Um, and all this is recorded information that's important for, or could be important for future treatments. But then we also go into a different range in the spectrum. So UV light, for instance, shows us fluorescence. Different fluorescence can say and point to different conditions, but also it can point to any changes that the painting has undergone. So for instance, overpaint can be made visible in UV light. And this is a standard tool. But oftentimes, conservators sometimes can disguise 
changes or overpainted areas, then you have to look a little closer. And then you can, for instance, look with a microscope. And there are different versions of microscopes. Some are more sophisticated. Some are just like binocular stereo microscopes that just bring the surface closer and more visible. It really depends. And some microscopes have even the capability of determining what material you are dealing with. So they can actually decode the chemical or, or physical makeup of the paint layers. And when you talk about that, are you actually trying to work with then historic paint materials, not just the colors, but actually some kind of material that comes from a previous place? Do you have, do you have a, in your LA art labs, do you have, for lack of a better term, paints from all eras? Yeah, it's actually a beautiful collection of about 500 pigments from different times and ages that I have collected over 15 years, so ever since I started. And it has curiosities like Latin yellow or Caput Mortuum, which is a pigment that has been derived from mummies. Wow. So, yeah, really wild things. Yeah, I'm sure some of those probably paints have the blood of the artist in them. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Actually, <laughs> it's also an interesting occurrence taking care of all these paintings, like the things that you find in the paint layers. It's actually really interesting. Today, there were some, some of Warhol's hair, and he had this very like whitish hair. So we found some embedded in the paint layers of one of the paintings upstairs. But sometimes there are also like little bugs or other inclusions, which is really cool, pointing that uh, the artist might have taken the painting out and done more of a plein air style rather than just making the painting in its studio. That's interesting. I imagine there's probably the sweat of some of those artists in some of that work and probably cigarette stains and other, whatever they had. Oh, or cigarettes like Pollock, for instance, a cigarette stump behind the stretcher bar. You look at a painting and you don't imagine the, um, the time that the artist is painting it, but a clue like that or a little piece of hair reminds you that even if it's almost photographic to look at, that it was done by a brush and a hand and a heart. That's really fascinating. Do you have a favorite genre or era for your own personal art taste? Is there something that you're drawn to? I'm drawn to a couple of different artists, but my favorite is probably Edward Munch. He has been accompanying me ever since I can think with his visuals. But I was also doing extensive research into Edward Munch for about two years at the National Gallery of Denmark. So that was a very special treat. And he seems like a strange favorite artist. So what is it that draws you to him? Pretty much the amount of despair and pain that he is able to express. It's pretty unmatched, I feel like, in intensity with regard to like others' very unique expression. And it's naive in a way that it assumes almost, what's this word in English? like a childlike approach without really being childlike topics. Oh, that's really fascinating. Well, that's that's interesting. I want to explore a little bit of his work. I'm kind of a regionalist. I like uh, Thomas Hart Benton and oh, nice. like that. But it, maybe it's from growing up in the Midwest here in America that I'm drawn to that those fields and things like that. Yeah, I actually, I never came across this type of art 
before in Europe, it was like, you know, all European art and just like very little to no American art. It just like happened to be that way. And then when I came to the USA eight years ago, seven years ago, something around that, and I was all of a sudden introduced to this like incredible world of American painters. Thomas Hart Benton is, for instance, one of the first ones that I have uh, encountered in treatment at LACMA. And that was fantastic. And then I learned more about his very outrageous life and that he portrayed actually a lot of prostitutes and uh, brothel scenes and scenes of daily life, especially at night. Pretty good stuff. In New York at one time, I stumbled into an exhibit that was all his work at that time. And I was just, you know, when you walk into a kind of art that appeals to you, you feel at home, like you're just, you could be there all day. You can just, versus I've been in places where I can just run through rooms saying, okay, okay. You know what I mean? They they just don't do as much. And I, I hate to say that. Because in Europe one time, I was in a museum where I thought, I see so many Madonna and babies here. This looks like that was a baby booth at a mall. <laughs> and yet, amazing. Well done. But so many artists of that era were painting that image in some fashion. It just seemed like, oh, I can't believe that I'm, I'm now over it. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an abundance of Madonna and Jesus <laughs> paintings where Jesus also just like looks like a mid-aged man, even though he's portrayed as a baby. Very strange. <laughs> right. It is strange, but artist interpretation. I think that's one of the more extraordinary things about art is that you somehow through see through the lens of the eyes of the artist who believes that that's the image that they meant to express. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating to think about how this lens just changed throughout the ages. When we think about the medieval depiction of Jesus Christ as, as a baby, and we see those like mid-aged men shaped figures that are very strange looking, and it goes like into the Renaissance and everything starts to look more naturalistic. And then up to now, I mean, in some renderings, you can't even like really decipher that it is a baby. Right. You know, one of the things I was thinking last night prior to talking to you is what keeps you from becoming a forger? Not much. <laughs> Not much? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, there's a, what I would call a, the ultimate Faustian handshake, which is to become an art forger versus an art conservator once you know styles and brushstrokes and historic painting. So I don't want to smoke you out here. I don't want to put you on the FBI <laughs> most wanted list. But I'm always fascinated by a person's got to be a pretty great artist to be a forger. Yes and no, because it is a little bit easier to forge, I think, than to create. There is something magical about the genesis of something entirely new. But then if you think about recreating, also if it's in the style of an artist, that is more more doable, I feel like, because you just have to like study and get acquainted with whatever has been there with like the oeuvre of an artist. And then you can assume your forgery. And then it depends how much time and how well acquainted you are, whether 
it will work and other experts will actually acknowledge it as uh, the real deal. Right. If you get the mechanics right and the breaststroke right and the right or left-handedness and the colors, yeah, that's really interesting. So, and I'm sure that's happened many a time too. Something is a counterfeit and then many years later they discovered that that's not the actual artist? Oh, absolutely. And oftentimes actually... I would say that whether it's collectors or museums, they're not necessarily interested in figuring out what's a fake and what's the real deal because that's embarrassing. Yeah, especially if they paid a certain amount for it or, right, it's better to keep that story quiet. Exactly. Like there are so many politics involved when it comes to an acquisition and then also a deacquisition of an artwork. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, how did they come about it in the first place? How did they get to be the purchaser of that art? Exactly, exactly. And nobody wants to be the person who is responsible for like spending $10 million on a fake uh, Basquiat. Well, I read a book called The Art Forger. I don't know if it's one that you've looked into yourself, but it was about the robbery. I think it took place in the nine, 1990 or something of the Gardner Museum. It's one of the, it was bought in Boston and it was one of the, Maybe 13 paintings were stolen, and it's yet an unsolved crime. I'm always drawn to those kinds of heist movies where they have to go to all this trouble to move the art out, and then the art never surfaces again. Yeah, yeah. One can only wonder. And the brutality with which the heist was actually executed, because I think the paintings were just cut out of their frames and then rolled up. Pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like an art museum is burned to the ground at that moment because the material goes away and they can't just fence it. They can't just bring it out and put it in another museum. So what is the point of it, I wonder? Maybe somebody just wanted to keep it for him or herself. I don't know. There are strange motives and strange people out there. But I think the gardener, I don't know, the solution to... Displaying this loss, I find very sensible because there are empty frames on the walls indicating the loss. And I think not all hope is lost in that sense. Maybe they will be retrieved eventually and then placed where they actually belong for everybody to enjoy. Right. And I do like that. I do like that the frames are still there because the story is still alive. It may be hidden within the museum itself. Maybe it didn't get taken out. We don't know. Over time, that will, I'm sure, will suddenly make the appearance of those particular things on exhibit a much more, a greater attraction. Yeah. Suppose that the paintings are recovered. They've now been found in a cave somewhere and they have to be put back in those frames or returned to the museum. What would be the process of that in terms of how you would approach it? The first steps probably already happen on site where the works are reviewed for their condition, basically, and then stabilized. There will most likely be some insecurities because those type of places are usually not controlled in terms of climate. Stabilization to enable transportation to a museum or lab, wherever it's going, is crucial. From there, it can be decided which directions to pursue, to just like further stabilize it as needed, to compensate losses, to improve any aesthetics. So that would be then the next and to be figured out. 
would you use the same frames or would you leave the frames that might have the remnants of the previous painting and then frame them similarly and keep the story alive or how would you approach that? I think keeping the story alive is always a good a good way. The paintings that were cut out their frames, you take the remnants and you join these with the actual painting in a very tedious step. And so oftentimes aligning would be necessary, which is to support the painting with another canvas, joining the old pieces that have been severed and the actual artwork. Or a fret-by-fret method can be used by just like rejoining all the severed frets one at a time under a microscope with really tiny tools. That's crazy. I got several pairs of jeans that you could work on (laughs) because they're kind of threadbare and around the knees. If you would like to pay the fee that uh, (laughs) conservation (laughs) services afford, sure. Okay. I better just pick out my favorite ones. So when you're dealing with something of the level of a Picasso in your hands, what is the security and insurance and liability situation while you're working on it? What are you accountable for? So there are like standard procedures that you undergo as like a business owner or conservator in private practice. And you are actually insured. You have a couple of insurances and you're placed as additional insured onto the policy of the piece. So that's pretty convenient. There's certainly a protocol that you adhere to when it comes to like handling artworks that are within that range of value. I mean, any artwork is really treated like that. But when the liability is so high, you basically just second guess every step. Yeah, I bet. I wouldn't want (laughs) to put the brush to the painting. Seems like it would be nerve wracking. It is, but it becomes pretty normal eventually because you just like surrounded by these divine pieces of art all the time. And it just like becomes, you know, what you normally see. How many members are on your team in terms of working on things at one time? That depends on the size of the of the painting. So one of the biggest paintings, for instance, that needed treatment and needed to be restretched as a is a warhol. And I I'm not sure how big it was, but it was three times 10 meters, something around there. So it feels very, very large, large wall. It needed about 10 people to basically move it, to place it onto its new stretcher. And then the treatment basically was done by two assistants and myself. So it really, really depends. You're the lead on these things. So you're the one who's checking everybody's work and being sure that one corner is not a little different than the other. Exactly. I make sure that everything also runs smoothly and I like to like stay on top of things and have responsibilities. So that's very normal to my nature. And do you do this for private collectors and individuals as well as for museums? Exactly. A whole range. Now also royal collections. So that has been a wonderful addendum. I'm not really authorized to speak about any of these. Of course, no one understood. I, I would, if you could tell me the location and maybe the <laughs> the numbers to the safe. Uh, other than that, and I just need your mom's maiden name and your security number, and then <laughs> we'll, we'll be done talking at that point. Do you need all the digits or just the last four? <laughs> I think we'd be safe with the last four. I think you're probably a person that people trust a lot, and that you're not going to slip up and and tell me anything. 
Probably not, no. Good. What are you wearing when you approach this in terms of not getting your own skin oil on things? Is there some protocol with masks and glasses and gloves and things? It really depends on the painting that we encounter. A lot of surfaces are incredibly vulnerable, especially when it comes to the contemporary art. That's when gloves are incredibly important. Some surfaces are so vulnerable that, you know, outside of COVID times, we are wearing masks. So no saliva comes in contact with the surface, staining or darkening the area that's then affected. If somebody's interested in preservation or conservator work, where would you suggest they begin in terms of their study or their search? Well, there are a couple of avenues that one could pursue. I oftentimes actually get emails from people that are interested in art conservation, really young or like mid-aged, like art affine individuals that want to get in touch with me in order to know more. I think that's the best way. Ask a professional. Usually people are pretty gracious with their time and take an hour or so maybe for a friendly cup of coffee. Any, any questions are fair to answer. So I would say that's the best way. Otherwise, there are some informational sources provided by AIC, which is our Institute of Conservation, or a bunch of other resources from other national or international associations. When you work, are you working silently? Do you jam to tunes? What's your go-to for while you're working intensely on a project? It always depends on the level of involvement. Sometimes I need absolute silence because I need to concentrate. Every movement matters. And then sometimes it's like very repetitive. For instance, cleaning a surface that's very straightforward can take hours or sometimes days or even weeks. And that's where I like to work with my team and jam out. What do you guys jam to? Anything. Like lately we had this classic rock phase because we installed um, the Pink Floyd exhibition, for instance, and did conservation work on their equipment. So that was a very prominent one for a while. (laughs) Now we're back to classic music because I have a new hire who's like really into, yeah, all these tunes. It, it changes like pretty much every day, every week. So the team itself builds a playlist between you of different where people's interests are. Yeah, we're very democratic and uh, forgiving too. So sometimes I feel like listening to more like heavy metal, a lot of like screamo, and everybody's very accepting, which I'm very grateful for. So you've talked about some of the different services that you provide that you do treatments on contemporary art and on paintings. Also, I read that you you do some sculpture and painted objects. So do you treat those differently? Usually it's more time consuming to approach sculptures. Oftentimes, sculpture is dependent on their build up. But the ones that I encounter are more like three-dimensional paintings. So they have the same technological build up, but just a different shape. Yeah, the treatment steps are very similar accordingly. And degradation phenomena are very similar. You have an amazing attention to detail. Is this distracting in life when you go to a museum or you go somewhere else and you see anything on the walls? Are you always sort of looking for the flaws or the how it's falling apart? Yeah, it's definitely an analytical approach to viewing. 
This also carries over in like random daily activities. We went camping the other day and there were areas where there were pigments, zinc white pigments in the earth. And so nobody could get me away from this area for like three or four hours. And I was just like sitting there just like looking at all the pigments coming out of the earth and harvesting some and then finding also other pigments, for instance, arsenic yellow, harvesting that also with gloves. Can we talk just a little bit about your pigment collection? Hundreds of pigments collected in all kinds of ways on camping trips and otherwise. How did you come to amass that over time? In what kind of locations? It's a variety of places that I was able to like harvest these pigments. And sometimes it's flea markets. Sometimes it's just like stores that are actually specialized in pigments. Sometimes it's even clients that bring me old pigments that they've just had, whether from a family member or their own, and they never used it. You find like the most obscure things really in the most random places. Sometimes I was able to even like score, for instance, at a flea market in Austria. I went there in the very early morning and found from the 1850s a watercolor palette. They used tins, but like enough of the colors in order to like really make it still count. Oh, that's awesome. So you're always observing. You're always looking for something like that in a situation, particularly somewhere in Austria where things might be a bit older than we would find here in the States. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are so many different like markets and they're not really specialized in anything. So you could find anything. Well, all right. So what's on your wish list? What's the pigment you would most like to find? What's the missing color in your color wheel? Maybe a really ancient Egyptian blue that was actually used like BC. That would be cool. It's a pretty amazing pigment, that Egyptian blue. Yeah, it was uh, synthetically derived back in those days, if you want so. And it's actually very difficult to get a pure grade because whoever made the pigment needed to regulate the oxygen levels. So there is like a layer of sophistication that's quite fascinating. Probably involved with the same guy that designed the pyramid itself. (laughs) Genius. Universal genius. You harvest these pigments so that you are able to use them in some natural paintings and other things of that nature? Certainly. So sometimes there is a real application for conservation. Sometimes it's the art that I actually make on the side that's not commercially available. It's just there for friends and family. So tell me about your art. I'm fascinated by what you would choose then in terms of your style or your subject. It's usually very messy and experimental, so the total opposite of how one would approach conservation. It's also a mixture of naturalistic renderings and very like trippy forms and spheres. And it's more therapeutic (laughs) for me to make these paintings than anything else because I can just do whatever I want. And if I build in insecurities, then it's intentional and I know how to consolidate them in order to make something that is made not to last, to last. Interesting. And are you also challenging conservatives of the future by putting in things that might be a little hard to duplicate? Probably, yes. Isn't that kind of like also the appeal of the profession? I mean, challenging future colleagues, that's kind of cool. I think that's amazing, actually. It's kind of like when the time machine comes and they come and collect your work, 
and then they try to fix it later. They're going to have to sort of try to figure out what your mindset was so that the various emotions can show up in the style. Yeah. Do you feel like you can tell a lot about an artist by the nature of the way they paint? Oh, interesting thought. I would say so. Usually by like the brushwork, the way of application, perhaps also how carefully rendered something is, can display the mindset of the artist during the genesis of the work, which might be subject to change because oftentimes the work is made over a period. Sure, but you might see those layers in, as you said, in the way you were able to look with it with technology, you might see a certain sketching and then some urgency and then something more deliberate. So you're kind of seeing stages of their of their work. Stages of their work, yes. But whether you can actually refer that, you know, their emotional state or thought processes that might be tied to how they feel today might be true, but that's very much speculation. Sometimes I would like to think that's true. I would think you get very intimate with these artists as you learn about their style and their choice and what they're doing. You must even be able to tell what kind of things they're painting with. It's very forensic, I guess. It is. It is. It's like being a detective of some sort. And it definitely helps when the artist is still alive and actually does have an opinion. So tying in the artist's voice into the treatment process is incredibly helpful, makes things oftentimes much easier, but sometimes also more complicated. Are they ever resistant to it being preserved? No, I wouldn't say so. Most most artists are actually very grateful that their artworks are being treated also on that high level and with such consideration and are very transparent and cooperative. Some people like Frank Stella, he doesn't care. He thinks that it's a conservator's issue and we should figure everything out. So he doesn't want to be bothered. But other artists also, for instance, reach out to me and they ask me for my opinion in terms of the preservation of their of their works or we improve workflows in order to make paintings more durable. So we have a lot of like corporations like that going on, especially here in the LA area. I know that you're LA based. Do you have galleries that you recommend that for, for people to go and see? Like if you were just telling a man on the street, <laughs> these are the great ones to go and enjoy. Where would you send people? There is an abundance of galleries, I feel like, in L.A. because the market here is just like so vibrant. One of my uh, client galleries is Nino Mir Gallery, and they're really wonderful. They have very interesting programming. Jesus, there are so many. (laughs) I recently saw that you had preserved, it was sort of a preparatory sketch for one of the painted backdrops of the, the film North by Northwest. And that was for the October opening of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, which is a brand new place. And it must be just really, even during this period of time where other people aren't working, you must be very busy with keeping people's paintings and everything in proper archival form. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's all the time works coming in. Just this week, we had nine paintings come in. Being part of the Academy Museum's opening was amazing. Having an a piece preserved for the particular opening. That was very wonderful. And also another very big client of ours is George Lucas. And so he's building his museum in LA. And 
we're currently working on five, six paintings at the same time and many more that are actually coming in. And we've concluded already, I think, about 20 conservation treatments all within what the pandemic was. That was a wonderful source of all sorts of art. You're such a great steward to the arts and probably something that most people aren't aware of. So they can find out more through LA Art Labs. Is there a website address that you have? So it's just laartlabs.com. And then anyone who's also interested in conservation or how to get into conservation is always welcome to just give us a call or write us an email. Great. We need many more future conservators. I'm grateful that you shared your wisdom today and opened our mind to other things and also set me straight on many things I didn't know. But it's always great. I love being in the seat of curiosity and you were a fantastic addition to our show. Thanks for for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It has been such a pleasure. Very excited to be part of this. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. la.